Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with two longtime journalists and authors, John Maxwell Hamilton and Peter Copeland. We'll talk about the history and the current status of being a foreign correspondent. Both have written extensively about the topic. Hamilton's most recent book is Journalism's Roving Eye. It won the Goldsmith Prize. Copeland's new book was just released. It's called Finding the News, Adventures of a Young Reporter. They have an open discussion with us about the relevancy and importance foreign correspondents play in the field of journalism. Jack, why don't you give us a little bit of history of foreign correspondence in this country? Did it start World War I before that? Give us some background. Actually, you can look at the idea of American foreign reporting as originating in the colonial period. In fact, you could argue that the high watermark of news that was foreign news in American newspapers was during the time of Benjamin Franklin being a printer. There were reasons for that. One was that uh, printers uh, basically lifted stories from other places. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't have editors. They didn't have reporters. They had none of that. They had to fill up a newspaper to try to sell it. And in the case of Benjamin Franklin and many other East Coast colonial uh, printers, they would rush down when ships came into the harbor. They'd take newspapers off the ships. Uh, and they take correspondence off the ship, that is letters that came in, and really, truly foreign correspondence, as it were, and they put in their newspapers. And so you look at the Philadelphia Gazette under Benjamin Franklin, and it had almost all foreign news. I'm surprised at that, I guess. I, I thought that it would be hyper-local but, uh, no. at that point. No, it's not hyper-local. And, and the reason for this was the towns were small. And so people knew pretty much what was going on down the street, as it were. Uh, you didn't have reporters, so that you weren't going to send somebody out in town to go find out things. Uh, third of all, foreign news was cheap. You didn't pay for it. You stole it. You lifted it from newspapers abroad. And it was relevant because most people were European-derived and s s saw themselves as having a connection to Europe. So they wanted to know what was going, going on, on back home. Right. So when did the position of being a foreign reporter have status? I mean, it's always been an honored position in, in journalism. When did that start? Well, I think you can see it in, in stages. In the 19th century, um, newspapers that were ambitious, like the New York Herald, for example, would have people abroad who, who were effectively stringers for them, people who worked part-time. Uh, they might be working for another paper, but in that 
in London, they would file stories for you as well. Uh, and there weren't a lot of papers that cared about foreign news in that time, and certainly almost none in, say, 1840 who had real foreign correspondents, except sending them maybe to cover a war. Uh, and so they would get stories on a part-time basis, and they began to think of them as a core of foreign correspondents, but they were what we would call today stringers. The next iteration comes toward the end of the 19th century when newspapers would send a person or two abroad uh, who would report for them on a full-time basis. Again, they were usually sent to cover something specific, like the Franco-Prussian War or something like that. And then... Uh, the turning point is the Spanish-American War, and that's when American newspapers began to think about covering the world in a more systematic, aggressive fashion. The paper that deserves credit for this, and history has never done a good enough job of explaining this very well, although I try to in my book, is the Chicago Daily News. It was You could argue, I think, that the Chicago Daily News was uh, originated what we think of today as modern journalism in many, many ways. It was run by a very, very... Uh, responsible, clean journalist, as he was called, uh, named Victor Lawson. And he concluded that instead of having your news come from people who were abroad who were not Americans, we needed to have Americans report on news for Americans. And so he began to place people abroad after the Spanish-American War. And of course, the Spanish-American War is a dividing point. That was a moment when we actually became a, began to see ourselves as a great power because, of course, we prevailed in that fight. And, and started getting colonial possessions, too, at the same time. And so he began to put, first he put uh, a person named Edward Price Bell in London. Then he put uh, uh, Paul Scott Maurer in Paris and other reporters around, many of whom became very famous. Uh, Raymond Graham Swing, people like that. By the time the World War I came, those reporters were the best core of foreign correspondents abroad for Americans. Other papers followed. The New York Times, of course, became a very good paper. Uh, it was a good paper, but the, the Daily News led it. And then you began to have cores of foreign correspondents of various sizes, sometimes six, seven, sometimes 12 or 20, uh, of people who were abroad reporting for you, Americans reporting for Americans. But the New York Times, you know, had more people who were British reporting for them abroad than they had Americans in, say, 1915. So I'm interested in the sort of the evolution of the foreign correspondent and Peter, I'm a little bit older than, than you, but what, when I was young, it was the newspaper guys that went over to radio and started covering World War II and after. Uh, what was your first memory of foreign correspondence and, and, and their impact on you? Uh, the, because I grew up in Scripps Howard and the Scripps newspapers, I – I heard the story a long, many times about E.W. wanting to start his own bureau in Washington during World War I because he and other American newspaper people were concerned that all of the European news was coming from European government news agencies. And uh, we had the Associated Press, but it was um, they didn't feel it was sufficient, and they wanted their own people covering what was our story. So uh, for us, for Scripps, that was really the beginning. And, but did you have any role models of foreign correspondents? Oh, well, because, you... I, because I worked for Scripps, Ernie Pyle definitely was okay. the person who I looked up to. And he was uh, from Dana, Indiana, born in 1900. He 
he was older when World War II started, older than the soldiers that he covered. But he, they, the Washington Bureau sent him to first to North Africa and then to Europe and then to Asia. And he was unusual at the time because he didn't believe in covering the briefings or uh, hanging out with the generals. He liked to be with the grunts out in the field, and he would be out for weeks at a time in very difficult, dangerous conditions. And just recording, reporting on average people. And he always, uh, one thing I liked is he always put in people's home addresses and the name of their girlfriend or the name of their parents. And he, he, it felt like he was writing letters home. So, so you got a real personal touch from him as yes. opposed to more of a political. Right. And it uh, wasn't the big picture. It wasn't the strategy. It was here's this grunt and on the ground and here's what he's doing. Jack, the... Uh, advent of radio and it's it's really coming of age in world war ii with a lot of print correspondence going to radio did that change the concept of foreign correspondence at all uh no it didn't it didn't change the concept of of being a foreign correspondent when you got to that point foreign correspondents were considered the elites on newspapers they were the first ones uh readers probably don't uh, listeners, your listeners probably don't think much about this, but reporters f- for the longest time, I remember when I worked at the Milwaukee Journal, I never had a byline, hardly ever. <laughs> that was in the 1960s. Bylines were a very unusual thing to have. But you gave bylines to foreign correspondents beginning around 1925 to 1930. You started doing that in a more routine way because they were your superstars, and you began to identify them as people who were who began to have something of a persona where your police reporter wouldn't have a byline. That, that's just not the way you saw it. Of course, today we we not only have bylines, we have the names of the helpers and, and their mothers-in-law. I mean, we have we Every, have all that in there. Everybody who's contributed, right? right. The, so so radio and then television helped make the foreign correspondent and the reporter generally, I might add, become a, a person that you could identify with. They start to become celebrities more, and and of course in in television, that's in to literally. To, to make a bad pun, in Technicolor, because you began to really yeah. see them and know who they were. And and that's why television journalists have agents and print journalists don't, uh, because they're just very different. On, on, the, uh, on, the, on the transition, though, what's interesting is that nobody really knew what radio was supposed to be at the end of World War I. Um, there were some people who thought radio should just be for entertainment, or maybe it should be for education. Maybe it shouldn't have advertising. There was even a question if radio should be radio, that it should stay in the hands of the government because wireless in World War I, wireless was in control of the Navy Department, which was using it for ship-to-shore communication. Uh, And so when they started doing foreign reporting uh, via radio, they had no idea what to do. So they would – they would, this is literally true. They would go take a microfilm and stick it inside Mount Vesuvius and listen to it rumble and grumble and have it play for like three hours. That, that would be what they did. And they sent Edward R. Murrow abroad, CBS did, and he was supposed to arrange entertainment, like getting the Bulgarian Boys Choir to play. The transition came when um, about the time of the Anschluss. In fact, the Anschluss was a key moment when the Nazis went into Austria. And then uh, Murrow decided to get people who were print journalists, uh, Vincent Sheehan, uh, William Shire, people like that, and arranged a kind of a round robin around Europe where they all were on the line, what we would call today like a CNN moment where people called in and talked experts. But they were deep experts who were real reporters. 
That, that's what they did. They, they did. they weren't telling you what they just thought. They were telling you what they knew as based on experience. And that starts to be a transition period where they began to realize maybe we ought to hire a few reporters. Shire was one of those. So by the time the war goes, starts really, it becomes an American war too, uh, CBS starts to become much more aggressive on the, on, the, on the radio side overseas. What's interesting, if you look back today, everybody thinks that Murrow was, and he was, the father of you know, radio and foreign news. But when you listen to what he reported, there wasn't much reporting in the sense of going behind the scenes. He, he, was, he was a speech major, and he was very articulate. And he, would and he you, was in London. <laughs> and he was in London, yes. And he would tell you what it looked like in London and what the siren sounded like. He was giving you a lot of color, but he wasn't giving you hard news the way a print journalist would. Uh, it's really quite interesting. Of course, then he went on to be you know, the father of a much bigger network uh, in terms of news. It, it was interesting. I, I've gone back and listened to a lot of those World War II clips. And, and for example, Richard C. Hotlet, who was with CBS, uh, did this D-Day report. But it was from the first two minutes of the invasion – he was with an airplane uh, uh, with the Air Force and then went back to London and gave this report that there was no resistance <laughs> on the D-Day report. But they, they, they weren't embedded like Ernie Pyle was, like you were talking about, Peter. You know, they, they sort of came in and out of situations. Yeah, that's actually – I didn't know that story. That's a great story that he, he was only there for two minutes and he had to go back right away to report because that's otherwise right. – that's how he had to file. Yeah, it's a good story. And, and that and was the D-Day report. <laughs> Jack and I have talked a lot about how technology has changed the way the reporters work because before World War II, it would, or even during for the print reporters, it could take a week or two weeks to get a story back. So you, you had to write in a different way. And when you were doing radio, it was uh, – I think it changed things, wouldn't you say? that It became more immediate, but it – it also maybe there was less depth because you didn't you didn't have the time and you you were only you could only report on what you could see. It was more instantaneous. Right. What's interesting about that to me is that if you go back and actually I had a student do this and compare NPR today with uh, what the Murrow Boys did as they were called in the 1940s. NPR's reporting was more source-based, which is a very important part of what we think of as journalism, right? Going and talking to people and having quotes, uh, and deeper than what was in the Murrow time. Now, it has to also be said that a lot of other radio, network radio, ABC, where I used to work, radio and CBS radio and all those, they don't do anything like they used to do. They're, they no. don't do that kind of reporting. But NPR actually does. And if you compare NPR to what was considered the golden age, which was the Murrow years, actually NPR is better in terms of foreign reporting. It's some of Murrow's reports back then, as you indicated, Jack, were were amazingly written. Uh, they they painted these amazing word pictures, and they tossed in some ambient sound, but it really was a monologue, uh, as as opposed to a news story. It was almost an oration. That, that that's right. It was it was almost a performance, and I don't mean that in a yeah. flip way. It was a performance as opposed to a news report as we would know uh, a news report to be. Actually, Tom, that's a really interesting way of putting it because, of course, television has become more and more entertainment-driven. 
and more and more ambient, whether it's ambient sound or whether it's the scenes behind it. Um, that's actually a very uh, smart way of describing it. Peter, when you first went over, first of all, when did you first do any foreign reporting? I started as a reporter in 1980, and then I, I moved to El Paso, Texas in 1982, and I covered the border, and that involved some trips into Mexico, and I moved to Mexico City in 1984 and covered all of Latin America from there for five years. How had – you've heard us talking about the, the 40s and World War II and the early part of television in, in the 50s. When you went there in the early 80s, how had things changed? Uh, I, I empathize with the reporter who only saw the two minutes of the D-Day and then had to go <laughs> back to file because a lot of our time in the 80s was, was spent trying to figure out how to get our stories back home. And, and then how to get film was even more difficult for either photography or video. So uh, the, we had – there were uh, computers, but they were very rudimentary, and you had to connect them physically with cables to a phone line and transmit or find a teletype machine or a telegraph machine. So there were, there were always uh, – no matter how good your story was, if you couldn't get it back, it was worthless. So – I always was keeping in the back of my mind, I'm going to spend X amount of time collecting information, X amount writing it, and then X amount transmitting it. And, and I always uh, had several ways in my head to, to back up the transmission. For example, during the earthquake in Mexico City in 1985, when the phones went down, I printed out, I had a, the power was out too, but I had a battery-operated printer. I printed out my stories, I went to the airport, I found people flying to the United States, and I paid them basically when they landed to call collect to our office in Washington and read the story over the phone. And I usually picked at least two or three people on different flights going to different cities just to have some redundancy. And it always worked. People always did what they said they would do, and they called the office with my story. But, but you were relying on an unreliable delivery yes, process. Yes, and, and this was uh, – and sometimes it was funny. I, I and during the Gulf War in 1990, I I had to dictate on an army radio, and then uh, a soldier on the other end was taking down the dictation. So I I had my story written, and then I gave it to a soldier, and he read it over the radio to another soldier who was closer to the rear, and then that soldier gave it to the media organization that then got it out. but That sounds I, like the old game of telephone, well, literally. <laughs> and I and all my friends, reporter friends, teased me because I talked about the turbine engines of the tanks, the T-U-R-B-I-N-E engines of the tanks. But the soldiers made it the turbine engines of the tanks, <laughs> T-U-R-B-A-N <laughs> engines. So I got a so lot of grief about that So a headdress of some sort. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It became <laughs> the well-dressed tank. <laughs> that's well, right. Right. When I was growing up uh, in the 50s and 60s, in late 40s, the foreign correspondent was the ultimate. I mean, I really looked at the foreign correspondent as the, the ultimate journalist, uh, you know, not the guy on the police beat, not the guy covering City Hall, not even the guy covering the White House at, at that point. At what point did that change, or is that still the case? I don't think it is, but... Is it still the case? 
I think it's both. There still are traditional foreign correspondents who work their way up through newspapers, and because of excellence and determination, they were sent overseas, and they are very good. But then now it's easier for young people to go somewhere and just set themselves up as a stringer, and it could be their first job. And they are not as experienced, they're not well paid, and they're not protected either, which it's happened a couple of cases where uh, freelancers have disappeared or been kidnapped or killed trying to report stories. And uh, so it's, it's less prestigious, it's less well paid, and, but maybe it's more dangerous. So, so I think uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. Peter's answer is, is nuanced, I think, in the right way. I think you could look at it uh, as perhaps having some historical parallels, though. There have been lots of young people who went abroad and could easily go abroad to just see what they could do. And some of those people ended up being great journalists. Edgar Snow, who was the famous China journalist, uh, who would, who, or Vincent Sheehan, one of my favorite journalists of all time, who just kind of gets on a, he had done a little journalism, he gets on a boat, ends up in Europe, and the next thing you know, he goes from big story to big story. Once they went to work for a major news outlet, initially magazines or newspapers, newspapers and then magazines, is the way the progression usually worked, they were they had a very different job from the kind of job that a that a domestic reporter would have. A domestic reporter tended to have a job covering city hall, covering the White House, whereas a foreign correspondent ends up covering political news, cultural news. They, they have to be an expert in all kinds of fields or at least be willing to go into those fields when need be, even if their primary beat was, was say, political or war or economics. Um, so they had to be more versatile. Uh, they also had to go from, from often cover more than one country, although they might be based in Italy. That didn't mean they didn't go to Greece. You could, there's only so many foreign correspondents you could have. Um, and then, third of all, they had to be able to be independent because they couldn't be supervised the way they were at home. Uh, you know, a domestic reporter is sitting very close to the editor that he or she works for. And usually that editor knows a lot about the story they're covering. In many cases, the foreign desk, even the foreign desk, didn't know all the nuances of what was being covered. So you had to have a reporter who was, you could trust, who you knew could actually go out and work hard, who you could trust. So they effectively had less supervision. And there was a tradition in the 30s and the 40s and even the 50s that foreign correspondents were meant to be almost self-assigning on their stories. There was a, a wonderful co core of foreign correspondents that worked at the Baltimore Sun. This was a, and they had an editor named Dorsey. And the story was always the same. It was told many times. A reporter would say, what do you want me to do? And Dorsey would send a, a telegram back and say, you're the foreign correspondent. I'm not. Love, Dorsey. <laughs> and he would never give them anything to do. And they would sometimes self-assign themselves. There was a case where two or maybe even three Baltimore Sun correspondents, and there were only like seven, assigned themselves to the same conference in Geneva and all showed up and saw each other there. <laughs> and, and I've seen evidence of that in the files of the New York Times as well. So the foreign correspondent was a very independent person. That's changed, largely because of technology. You, you know, uh, the American editor can think of news packages, where we're going to have a little right. bit from this person and that person. Well, now you can start thinking of news packages by your foreign correspondents. They're going to, somebody's going to do something from Berlin, and somebody's going to do something from here. We're going to do a story on immigration, and we're going to mobilize all these people. And I'm in touch with them every day. I expect to pretty much hear from them every day, even if it's just for a few minutes. Before technology, 
you could go a long time without hearing from your reporter in any direct way, in no direct way at all, and then directly it would be via a telex or a cable. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. So I've got a two-part question for, for either or both of you. You talking about how a foreign correspondent uh, was supervised differently and, and acted differently and was assigned differently, that infers to me that a foreign correspondent had to have a different skill set or a different uh, way of looking and practicing journalism than, than other people. Is that correct or not? I would say absolutely. And I was thinking when Jack was talking about how you cover things that you may be not prepared to cover, I had never been to a soccer game before in my life. <laughs> Good luck. My, my very first one was the 1986 World Cup in Mexico City, and I was expected to cover it. So I sat down with a bunch of reporters who came over from Scotland who were all professional soccer reporters. That was their job. And I, I just said, okay, what's happening now? What are they doing now? <laughs> and, and in exchange, I explained to them all of the cultural and political things that were going on in Mexico because none of them spoke Spanish, and I did. But it was the game when Diego Maradona hit the ball in with his hand. And it, it's a legendary moment in soccer history. I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was big. <laughs> I was there, I, and I saw him do it. But he said after, he said, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the hand of God. And that was a great quote also. So, uh, But you had to put that in context real quick. <laughs> yes, but it was a case where I was over my head completely, but through the help of other reporters. And then my editors back home who were sports editors fixed, cleaned up my copy. I called people strikers, which I didn't realize we don't say strikers. We call them forwards in American soccer. So things like that, they cleaned up for me. So I had help back You at home. least got the pitch right, right? right. And, and got nil, right, instead, right. Of, instead of zero. Right. Jack, what do you think? Different skill set? I mean, they, they always have the persona of being the rogues of journalism. Well, they, they, they were – uh, colorful, and of course that was because they were actually really good, and they had big personalities. They were a lot of them were Type A personalities, and so that makes them more likely to be independent and colorful. Um, this may be an observation that's worth making. I think the golden years of being a foreign correspondent was between the wars. Americans were not hated as they are today. Uh, there were a lot of news outlets, 
not only did radio come along toward the end of that period, but there were magazines that sent people abroad. Uh, Photojournalism was huge. Photojournalism starts to become big. There's all kinds of magazines like Time and Life and Collier's and Look and so forth. Um, Edgar Snow, who I, whom I've written about, who was this great foreign correspondent, he, he was pretty much a freelance writer in the 1930s, and he sold his first piece to Saturday Evening Post. And he was able to pay his lodging and all his food for a year on, on what he would get paid for a Saturday Evening Post piece living in, in what today we call Beijing. Well, you know, today there isn't a Saturday Evening Post that pays like that. And second of all, it's a lot more expensive to live in Beijing. So those reporters could go abroad for long, long periods of time and make a good living. And the point I was going to try to get to is they ended up becoming, many of them, really, really expert, deeply expert in what they were reporting. And, and so they were an eyes of ears for our country. At a time when we think of the United States as being, having been isolationist, they were just the opposite of that. They were very worldly wise and could see what was coming. My favorite reporter of all these is the one I mentioned, Vincent Sheehan, a wonderful, colorful character if ever there was one. And Vincent Sheehan defies the odds. He would, um, his, one of his good friends is another famous journalist, John Gunther, and one day he was in Italy and Gunther was in New York, or was the other way around, I can't remember. And he said, John Gunther just died. That John Gunther at that moment had just died. He predicted, wow. he predicted that Gandhi would be assassinated by a Hindu. Wow. And he went to cover it. He also, because of who he was, when he met with, he was right there when Gandhi was assassinated. He, a couple of days earlier, he asked Gandhi if he could join his ashram. So <laughs> Sheehan was a big character. Uh, but there's a story he wrote for the Herald Tribune. I, I'll try not to make this too long. The New York Herald, which is a Republican paper. Sorry, the New York Tribune, which is a Republican paper. In which he went, he was covering the onslaughts. And... Um, it was the lead story. He was a freelancer now, and he wasn't. He was more on the left than the right. And the and the Tribune was a very respectable conservative paper. He wrote the lead story, and at the end of it, he says, "I can't give you any sources for this, but I can tell you, I've been here a long time, and I've been talking to a lot of people. And some people think that the Nazis just respond to a small group of people, but actually, they respond to a huge swath of the public. And he lists them all, and he says, and he says this in the first person. And I can tell you that the way this is going to end is in World War." Whoa. An amazing story. Whoa. And, of course, he was right. He just was very smart. But you couldn't have gotten that if you just came to Vienna and you had been there a week or a year. I mean, you had to have been steeped in politics and really understand what was going on. Those re many of those reporters were exceptional by historical standards, not even by standards of their own time. Do we have anything similar today? And and what I'm getting at is it seems like we had a transition. Certainly when economics got tough and the news business foreign correspondence got drawn back or eliminated, uh, what do we have now compared to what we had? We have a smaller core of people like Jack is talking about, the Americans who went overseas for long periods of time and lived there and and establish roots there. Um, uh, the other thing that's different, though, is the professionalization of media in other countries, where it used to be we would send reporters because we couldn't get accurate, well-reported information from the local media in those countries. Now, there's in many countries, there's been a, a professionalization of the media, and we can get, like in Mexico, for example, there are 
there have always been good Mexican reporters. When I lived there, they were restricted in what they could say and publish by the government. And those, a lot of that has been lifted now. And so there's much better reporting by Mexicans about Mexico that we have access to over the internet. So that's, that's the plus side of the equation. The minus side is that fewer American newspapers have the resources to send people overseas. I think you could argue that the total number of, of American news media working abroad, not CBS and ABC television, not necessarily the Chicago Tribune, which doesn't have many foreign correspondents, or the Boston Globe that has none, which used to have some, or the Baltimore Sun, which has none. Um, there are actually more today than there were 30 years ago, but they appear in different ways. For example, Bloomberg all by itself has more reporters and editors abroad than, than all of them combined. I mean, it's well over a thousand, but it's a rarefied medium because you have to pay a lot of money for your Bloomberg terminal. Not everybody has access to that right. information. Uh, and there are other places that get foreign news in ways that are not traditional but add to the a volume of news that comes in, provided you have access to it or know how to go get it. What do you think about that, Peter? Do you think that's right or wrong? Um, I think it may be right in terms of the numbers, uh, but it feels different because I felt it was uh, good when we had competing newspapers and wire services and TV networks. The TV networks don't have people at this point, I don't think. No, poor not, Richard not, Engel from <laughs> NBC. Is, yeah. And anytime there's anything going on, right. he's there. And he, right. he they're, lives they're, on an airplane right. rather they're, than they're, being based in a place. Right. They're, well, they're based in London, and they just go wherever right. they're supposed to go. Right. So, so your point is, because I think this is a really important point, your point is that when you had a number of news media who could be read by mass audiences – that had also a greater impact on not only public opinion, but how political leaders had to see events because right. they were reaching not just a small elite group, right, but a larger one. Is that the point? Yes, yes. I want to build on that a bit, and I, I'm not sure how to ask questions, so I'll just try to construct it on the fly here. We've become a country that I think, without argument, is becoming more isolationist. Does that mean that we care less about foreign news and therefore it will be diminished even further in our uh, journalism? Or is it something that the more isolationist we become, the more need there is for foreign information? So um, I made the argument that the golden age was the inner warriors. Right. Simultaneously, that was a period of great isolationism. We pulled back from World War One. When it came to the Great Depression, we all were, had a mercantilist point of view that we were all just going to take care of our own economy. We weren't going to worry about anybody else, which, of course, exacerbated the economic problems, which is a good lesson to take if you're thinking about Donald Trump today, who thinks you can go it alone because, in fact, you can mm -hmm. make things worse. Uh, but at the same time that that was happening, there were all kinds of people who were going overseas, young students who, for whom it was a small college in Ohio or in Iowa who just decides to go to Europe. There were actually tours set up for graduating uh, college students to go to Europe in mass. Missionaries were going abroad in untold numbers. Business people were working abroad. So there are all kinds of people going abroad, even though government policy reflected a certain kind of isolationism and hands-off-ism, if you were, Will. Uh, there are still today lots of people who 
are going abroad, who realize they're going to make money going abroad or just want to go to abroad for vacation. And so in that sense, I don't think we're isolationist. I think there is a brand of populism and world weariness on the part of many Americans who are worried about terrorism, who find it uh, bewildering and, and frightening, uh, or who are very worried about domestic problems because our prosperity is challenged at the moment, income disparity, people like who are living here in Ohio who have opioid problems and can't get jobs and structural unemployment, things like that. And that, that makes one become more isolationist, I think. But it doesn't mean that we're – it doesn't mean, A, that we're more isolationist in, the, in a larger sense, that we're not engaged in abroad, abroad because we are. And it definitely doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged abroad because, paradoxically, if you think things are bad, they're going to get worse if you're not. You have to protect yourself by knowing what's going on abroad. So I think it's complicated. Uh, I don't think it's to our advantage to think that we shouldn't have foreign reporting or even, frankly, that we should have political leaders that don't think what happens abroad is important and try to diminish it. I think that's an act, uh, the opposite of leadership in a, the kind of world we live in today. One other area I wanted to talk about, and that's technology. Obviously, we live in a technological age that changed, has changed the landscape of journalism markedly over the last 10, 15 years or, or so. Uh, with technology in the hands of more and more people, we can have more and more citizen reports. And is that something that we in the news business have become reliant upon as opposed to paying someone, a professional, to report something? Yes, I would say that we are more reliant on that because it seems easier. That seems iffy and, yes. and risky to me. Yes, and it's you leave yourself open to being manipulated or tricked, and also you get a, a – uh, it's like looking at the world through a straw, and even if you get – 10 independent videos that come in, they're 10 different straws. It's still not a big picture that a, a well-trained correspondent could give you about the same event. So it, it, the other problem is that there's a priority on live video with action happening. And, and anybody with their cell phone can just put their camera on and, and record video. And that seems to get more traffic and therefore more money than a, a nuanced, well-thought-out story. So I, I think that's a problem also. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, actually, I was, I was listening to Peter talk about it because I think he said it so eloquently. I was, I was thinking to myself, um, what a profound problem that is. Really good reporters, even if they're just watching a soccer game, can – can tell you about that game in a way that even if you saw it, you might not fully understand until they captured it for you. It's, a, it's an art. It's a, it's a skill um, to be a really good reporter and go to the, the kernel of what's – It's a what, different way of looking at things. It's, it's like comics look at the world differently. I think journalists look at situations differently. Yeah, and, they, and, they look, and the really good ones learn how to take a complex situation and be able to give you a picture of what's going on and, and hitting the points that you – that are most important and most salient. That's a, that's that takes some people are never quite achieve being okay at that, but great journalists are really good at that. That's one of the things they can do is they can take complexity and make sense out of it for you. And so the ideal situation is you combine those great journalists with the really good technology, and then we could be in a golden age of journalism. 
because the technology is so empowering in the right hands that you can get high quality video and transmit it from anywhere. That is new and uh, it's a powerful tool that could be used well by someone who knows what they're doing. I've talked to a few young people who are doing foreign reporting um, and they're freelancing. They're doing it on their own. They're raising their own money to, to go. But instead of covering a region or covering a, 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 a collaboration of countries, they're going for a single story, a single purpose, a single interest. Is, is that something new? So um, one of the things I left out about the elitism of foreign correspondence was the factor that going abroad was a bigger deal in, say, 1930 than it is today. Today, you, know, you can get a special and go to London for the weekend for 700 bucks. Right. And so, and that was not easy to do in 1925. You had to get on a boat and, and so forth. It took time. Uh, one advantage of that is that people can go abroad to do specific stories for which they have uh, deep expertise. An example of that would be, you have a reporter based in Rome who's covering the papal succession. So that reporter, like Peter, can cover soccer, can cover a war, <laughs> can cover the economy, can cover an art show. And so that correspondent can go cover this papal event. But what if you also send, as happens, your religion reporter, who really knows a lot about the church and can provide really great cover, cover, cover of the story? Put them in and pull them back? Yeah, and so they come because that's not really a story about Italy. It's a story about the church. And so you could send somebody in with deep expertise to do a one-time story, or you could send somebody who's a medical expert to Haiti to look at what happened after the uh, uh, hurricane came through and decide what, what the medical consequences are in a way that the reporter who was based there, who was a general assignment reporter effectively, couldn't necessarily do. So that's a plus. That's a big plus. Um, so I don't know. Is that – that seems like – that's that seems like – to use your example, that seems like a case where a reporter going abroad on a story in which they're deeply expert could be a good thing, not a bad thing. Could be even better. Yes. Yeah. Peter, you in your book uh, give advice to young journalists. What advice would you give to a young journalist who still wants to go abroad to report? I think if you still really, really want to do it and – uh, you have the means to support yourself for a little while. I, I recommend people just go. That if you're interested in China or Mexico or South Africa, save up enough money to go for three months, uh, go and see what it looks like on the ground and write a blog or um, tweet. Try to get connected with a local journalist. Look for a, a local newspaper that's, that has looking for people who speak English. Um, it's not it's not as easy anymore to work your way up the ranks. Well, it was never easy, but <laughs> even now it's harder to work your way up the ranks of the Wall Street Journal, say, and then be sent to Brussels. It, the odds of that happening are, are slim, and it's going to be many years from now. If you're dying to go, go. And develop some expertise. Yeah, long, and maybe they'll get the picked way. up there by somebody right. who needs you. Right, and you, you might find out that the Wall Street Journal reporter who's there needs help can't be in two places at once and, and needs a hand or needs a hand clipping the newspapers or uh, 
making coffee, whatever it is, uh, you know, insert yourself into the local journalism scene. Jack, if the golden age was between the world wars, um, what would it take? Last question: What would it take to have a new golden age? What what magic wand would we have to wave to make it even better? Well, I don't like to sound discouraging, but I think sometimes there are conditions that allow for tra transitions that are very positive. You could have somebody who is a great diplomatic thinker today, and they could never have achieved what was achieved at the end of World War II when we remade the world diplomatically because we had this spectacular moment where the United States had a lot of power and we could create a whole new set of institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and NATO and so forth. And I don't think we're in that moment now as it relates actually to foreign policy, but also as it relates to news. I think we're in a moment right now of chaos and trying to figure out how this news actually really works. And so one solution, which I also, uh, which I think is right, but I think is easier said than done to use the cliche, is that one of the best things that could happen for us is to create readers who are discriminating. That's a very important quality in today's world because there are so many sources. We have, we have so many ways to get information and so many ways to have bad information foisted upon us. That leaves us with the capacity to use technology to try to distinguish the good from the bad, but that takes time and inclination and some expertise. And an inbred skepticism, the kind of skepticism that we always think journalists should have, the reader needs to have that skepticism. Can that really be right? Can, that, can it really be right that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton is running a child uh, enslavement operation out of a pizza parlor? I mean, does that really sound right? And so we need to have the reader needs to be much more talented today to deal with the world we live in. And that's, I don't think that's easy to do because actually foreign news, if we just use that as an example, has had one of the lowest readerships. It has high readership among elites, but it has a low readership among the great masses of people who have other things to do and have never been to Ethiopia. They've never been to Sudan, where Peter reported from. They haven't even been to Mexico City in many cases. So they don't know who the people are. They don't know what the issues are. So it's just like, it's like Peter going to a soccer game and he doesn't even know how soccer's played. He's covering it. It's like you're going into a world where you don't, you don't know the specifics. You don't have context. So great demands are put on the reader, the audience as it were, in this, in this environment. And I'm not saying that's easy, but I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges we need to address. It was one thing when you could trust major news organizations to be responsible, but now that trust factor is out because there's so many competing sources of information. Gentlemen, thank you. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tom. Today, our guests were journalists and authors John Maxwell Hamilton and Peter Copeland as they discussed the roles of foreign correspondents in journalism. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One, Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, 
please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.